Let's begin in Colossians chapter 1. We'll read verses 1 through 18. I'm going to do what I always do. I'm giving you an overview of the book today. We'll be looking at the theme, the purpose, some background, of course, helping us to understand uh, the placement of the book, not only in the Scriptures, but in the canon of Scripture as far as where we are. It's very interesting as you consider that and looking at the other themes of the epistles that precede Colossians. And so we're going to begin our reading in verse 1, and we'll read through verse 18. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother, to the saints and faithful brethren in Christ, which are at Colossae, grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus, and of the love which ye have to all the saints. For the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, whereof ye heard before in the word of the truth of the gospel, which is come unto you as it is in all the world, and bringeth forth fruit as it doth also in you, since the day ye heard of it, and knew the grace of our God in truth. As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear brother, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declared unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that ye walk, might walk worthy of the Lord unto all pleasing, being fruitful in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all might, according to his glorious power unto all patience and long suffering with joyfulness, giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of his, the saints in light who hath delivered us from the power of darkness and hath translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature. For by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him." And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. Let's pray again together. Father, as we open your word this morning, we are grateful for the privilege to stand, to look into, examine, discover the truths therein. Thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, who you, has, you have made to be the propitiation, the atonement for our sin. Lord, that you have restored us, redeemed us, brought us back unto yourself, restored us into a right relationship with you through this justifying work of the Lord Jesus Christ. We are grateful for the privilege it is to open the Word of God this morning, even to read it together. Lord, may we not take for granted as your people the freedom that you've given us to be able to gather as we do this day as a body and reading together, and praising you, and opening the Word of God, and studying your truth. So may your Spirit provide us discernment and understanding of that which we will read and, and look into this morning. Father, we thank you for uh, the gift you have given us in your Word, that you have given us the faith, passed it down unto us, all things pertaining unto the person and ministry of Christ. And Lord, we thank you that you have revealed the Lord Jesus to us through the Word of God. So may we have eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to receive of the truth of who you are as you've declared and revealed yourself to be. And Lord, may we have lives that are committed, therefore, to live in the truth that is commanded by you in your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Thank you and be seated. Paul's epistle to the Colossians is one of the four prison epistles, as I've mentioned as well through our study of Philippians. Uh, Paul had written four epistles while in prison. This is one of the four. And the epistles referred to as the prison epistles include the book of Ephesians, or the epistle to Ephesus, uh, Philippians, Colossians, which we are studying now, and Philemon. And as is my custom to do when we begin a new study, as I've already mentioned, anytime we begin a, to examine a new book, meaning uh, uh, begin a new study within one of the epistles or one of the books of the Scripture, whatever that may be, Old or New Testament, we'll begin the study this morning with an overview of the book. And within the overview, we're going to examine several details concerning this letter, of course, including the author of the epistle, the date, uh, estimated date the epistle was written, the recipients of the epistle, and the theme, of course, of the epistle, among other things. So let's begin this morning by looking first and, and foremost at the author of the epistle to the Colossians. The author of the epistle to the Colossian church is obviously the Apostle Paul, as indicated within the first verse of the epistle. Look what he says. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, and Timotheus, our brother. Paul begins his epistles in, in similar ways often, but not identically the same way each and every time. And in this case, of course, he begins by stating he is an apostle of Jesus Christ. There's times he begins by stating he's a servant or slave of Jesus Christ. And sometimes other times he mentions apostle, or he may even say prisoner or include prisoner of the Lord Jesus Christ within his greetings. And in this case, he uses the, the greeting by saying Paul, identifying himself, and then renaming himself an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God. And then, of course, he speaks of Timotheus, Timothy, our brother. He's greeting through for he and Timothy alike. As it was common practice of Paul, as I mentioned, many cases, he begins this epistle identifying as an apostle of Jesus Christ, and Paul began the following epistles in this manner, including Colossians in other epistles. A list of them are Romans chapter 1, verse 1. He does the same. 1 Corinthians 1, 1, 2 Corinthians 1, 1, Galatians 1, 1, Ephesians 1, 1, Colossians 1, 1, uh, 1 Timothy 1, 1. 2 Timothy 1.1 and Titus 1.1. In each of these epistles, Paul begins by saying, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, or in a very similar manner, he begins the greeting. Now, we not only have Paul identifying as the author of the epistle in the opening of the letter, but also we see a signature style uh, throughout the epistle, including this first chapter. So I want to give you a list of the manner in which Paul wrote. So it's a signature of Paul, if you will. First is Paul's greeting in verses 1, 1 and 2. And this is very common for Paul in his epistles to do such. Then you see Paul's thanksgiving for the faithfulness of the Colossian believers in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. If you recall with me, Paul even did so in his letter to the Corinthians. Paul did not discount, even in 1 Corinthians, which was a letter of absolute rebuke to the Corinthian church, we find that Paul begins by still speaking of them as the church, as the saints, those called to be saints, and he's acknowledging God's work within them and how, how God had equipped them, giving them all things necessary to live in, in righteousness and truth. And so Paul does not discount even the Corinthian church, though he was rebuking them for their carnality, for their lack of spiritual maturity and growth as it should have been. But we see Paul gives thanks for uh, the Colossian believers in, in chapter 1, 3 through 8. Then Paul's prayer for the church in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Again, this is common practice for Paul. You'll find he'll greet, 
He will give thanks and praise to God for those to whom he is writing, and then he prays for them. Immediately, he opens up the epistle in this prayer, and he's, he's audibly, well, I say audibly, he's, he's writing out uh, for them visually his audible prayer unto God for them. And so he's acknowledging their, the Lord Jesus Christ first and foremost, then giving thanks for his church, and then giving prayer for them. And many times that prayer includes thanksgiving. Then we see Paul's summary uh, and he does so here, writing of the power of the gospel in verses 12 through 14, then the preeminence of Jesus Christ in verses 15 through 19, and then the purpose of this redemption in verses 20 through 29. So Paul is summarizing not the entirety of the letter necessarily, though he does to a degree, but he's summarizing these foundational truths, the power of the gospel. How many times does Paul do that throughout his epistles? The preeminence of Jesus Christ. He always does that. In this case, specifically points that truth out and emphasizes it. And then the purpose of this redemption. Look throughout Galatians. Look through Ephesians. Look through Philippians. You're going to find Paul doing the same exact thing. Maybe not identical in terms, but he's still emphasizing and summarizing these same truths. Certain features of Paul's writings have been identified within his epistle, which include, first, that Paul introduces himself by name in the introduction of the epistle. Second, Paul prays for those to whom he has written. Third, Paul answers questions that were present. Fourth, Paul addresses issues which existed. Fifth, Paul exhorts the reader in the truth of what they were to believe. Fifth, Paul instructs the reader on how to live in that truth. And then last, Paul concludes his letters with greetings to the saints. And so this is common practice for Paul. You can identify a lot, many of Paul's epistles by such a reference and seeing this to be true. The date of the epistle to the Colossians, when was it written? We know Paul was a prisoner at Rome during the time in which he had written this letter to the church at Colossae, which would lead us to believe that it had been written around the same time as his letter to the church at Ephesus, placing the estimated date of Paul writing the epistle sometime between AD 58 to AD 63. And so we believe that to be the estimated time. And there are distinct similarities between Ephesians and Colossians in which Paul identified his suffering for the sake of the gospel ministry to the Gentiles. In Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 6, let me read this to you in comparing it to Colossians 1, 24 through 27. For this cause, I, Paul, the prisoner of Jesus Christ for you Gentiles, if ye have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which is given me to you, word, how that by revelation he made known unto me the mystery, as I wrote afore in few words, whereby when ye read, ye may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known unto the sons of men, as it is now revealed unto his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs, and of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ by the gospel. Let me pause here for just a moment. I don't want to belabor this because I want to move on to see the comparison between the two epistles. But notice Paul speaks of the mystery here, and then he identifies what that mystery was. The mystery was not... It is not um, it's more narrow than just simply saying salvation. It is specifically the mystery of salvation to the Gentiles. This is the mystery that was hidden. This is what the prophets prophesied of throughout the Old Testament. Then we read Colossians 1, 24 through 27. Who now rejoice in my sufferings for you and fill up that which is behind of the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. 
whereof I am made a minister according to the dispensation of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God, even the mystery which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to the saints, to whom God would make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So again, we see a very similar statement of Paul in Ephesians as that which we find here written in Colossians. Paul was a prisoner, as I mentioned, who physically suffered for the gospel's sake, as he even mentions in Colossians 1 and verse 24 when he speaks about the afflictions of Christ in my flesh for his body's sake, which is the church. So for the sake of the church, and more specifically, for the sake of the Gentiles. And this was exactly what the Lord was referring to, the suffering of Paul for the sake of the gospel, when he told Ananias at the time of Paul's conversion in Acts 9, 15, and 16, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. So here the Lord is saying to Ananias concerning Paul at this time of conversion, Paul's conversion, that Paul was going to suffer greatly for the sake of Christ, for the sake of the gospel, and, of course, for the Gentiles, the sake of the gospel to the Gentiles, to whom he was called to minister as an apostle to the Gentiles, and as well to the Jews. Let's move on to the recipients of the epistle to the Colossians. While, there, while many of the epistles which Paul had written were to churches which God had used Paul to establish, one of the unique things about the church of Colossae is that Paul not only had never, did, was not the founder, of, he did not establish the church at Colossae, but it is also believed that he had never even seen them in person at this point in his ministry. So here Paul is writing to the church of Colossae, which is a church that he did not, was not the founder, he did not establish, God didn't use him to establish this church, but yet he is still writing to them all the same as if he had founded the church, as if he were the one God had used to establish the church, which speaks volumes um, concerning the commitment of Paul to the gospel ministry and that Paul was not playing, if you will, uh, favorites, even though he had churches to whom he was endeared to. For instance, the church at Philippi, as we saw through our study in the months past, We've seen how Paul was endeared to the church at Philippi and and the unique calling of God to the church at Philippi through what is uh, uh, referred to or known as the Macedonian call, as you recall in the book of Acts, where Paul is on his way to preach. He's looking, the Holy Spirit's forbidding him to go here and there, and then he has this dream and vision of this man calling, come to us from Macedonia. So God uh, sent Paul to Macedonia, and and Philippi uh, was part of that, the chief city, if you will, within that region. And so he goes there, and he ministers to these Philippians, and and, and no doubt is the founder there of the church there at at Philippi and, and other churches within the region. But that is not the case here with the church at Colossae. So the church at Colossae, Paul is writing to them as though he is, as though they know him, as though they are, they are beloved of him on a personal level, in knowledge and fellowship, if you will. But notice that that is really irrelevant because the point is they have a fellowship that's in Christ that far exceeds any, any physical, personal uh, relationship that they could possibly share in, in, a, in, a, in a carnal manner. But rather, this is the fellowship and relationship that exists between them because of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the way, this is the reason 
that you and I, if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, this is the reason that you and I are able to meet people and you sense that there is something about them and you begin to discuss and talk to them and you find out before long that they are, are believers in Jesus Christ and there is a fellowship that exists though you've never met them before in your life. I've done that many times. I have met individuals who were believers, and I didn't know that, and they didn't know anything about me, and we would begin to talk or discuss, and before long we're beginning to converse, and we're beginning to discuss spiritual things, biblical things, speaking of Christ, and then we begin to share in fellowship, and it's as though we've known each other for an eternity when we've not known anything about each other up to that point in time. Isn't it interesting? While we should desire to have uh, our, our, our form relationships in the sense of for the sake of the gospel, wouldn't it be, wouldn't it be a, a wonderful thing if the church, the body of Christ, were as intent on others having a relationship with Jesus Christ as they were intent on trying to form relationships with others, even as they might claim for the sake of a relationship with Jesus Christ? I think there's times where, of course, we are to have relationships and form bonds and relationships, but listen, that should never, ever hinder us from being bold and confident in the gospel, which is the real need of that individual. Again, even as we evangelize those without Christ, it's not important they know me. It's not important they know anything about me. It's not important that they know I'm a pastor. It's not important that they know that I've, I've, I've been a believer since the age of 12. None of that's important. What's important is they know the Christ that I know. And so should it not be that we are intent and, and, and purposeful in our conversations with those in such a manner? So Paul here in writing to the church at Colossae, he has this fellowship and this relationship that's present, though he has never met them, and though he was not the one who established the church at all. So how was the church established? Well, in Colossians chapter 1, verses 7 and 9 through 9, we read, As ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declare unto us your love in the Spirit. For this cause we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to de desire that ye might be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. So here Paul is praying for this church at Colossae, saying our desire is that you be filled with all knowledge and understanding of the will of God. And he says, since I heard of Epaphras from him, of your faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ, I have not ceased to pray for you. Paul is committed to them now. Because they are committed to Christ and the gospel, he is now committed to them. And so he's praying for them continually that they might grow in the knowledge and faith of the Lord Jesus. By the way, let me point this out as well. Notice Paul does not say, I'm really praying that your church will grow in the community and that it becomes, uh, that numbers of people just begin to, to fill your fellowship. He doesn't say, oh, I hope that you have a great impact. No, he says, I'm praying that you might grow in the knowledge and faith of the Lord Jesus Christ. Isn't it interesting that it is so easy to get distracted, is it not? You remember whenever you look in Revelation at the book of, or, or the, the letter written to the church at Ephesus. Ephesus was a spiritually mature, grounded, rooted church. There's no doubt about that. You look at the first three chapters, again, of, of Ephesians, and Paul is writing to them concerning deep, foundational, spiritual, eternal truths to which he would not dare write to the Corinthian church about. I've often said, compare 1 Corinthians chapters 1 through 3 with Ephesians chapters 1 through 3. There is a vast difference in those two 
uh, letters up to that point. And the reason being is because Paul is expounding of the riches and depths of the truths of this redemption in Jesus Christ, these eternal truths, to the Ephesians because they were able to stomach it. They were able to receive it and digest it. But the the Corinthian church, Paul even says, it's interesting in chapters 2 and 3 of 1 Corinthians, he speaks about how that uh, he determined there's nothing among them save Jesus Christ and him crucified, which was a rebuke to their their immaturity, saying, I cannot proclaim anything other than the very foundational truths of the of this redemption because you and then chapter three goes on to explain why. Because I have to give you milk instead of meat because you're babes. And you cannot you cannot digest this. And so look at Ephesians where Paul is writing to them uh, in these deep eternal spiritual truths of redemption. But then notice in Revelation what happened to the church at Ephesus. Many have misstated or misquoted this, and they say, make a statement such as this. Oh, the church at Ephesus, they lost their first love. No, they did not. The Scripture does not say they lost anything. What does it actually say? They left their first love. They didn't lose anything. No, they were the ones who left their first love. While they were rooted and grounded in the truth, they left their first love. Colossians 4.12, Paul goes on to say, Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. So here you see that Paul speaks of Epaphras twice here in this, in this uh, epistle up to this point, and we see that he does so speaking of how they were minis- they, he was a minister of Christ unto them. Back, back at chapter 1, verse uh, Seven, he says, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ, who also declare unto us your love in the Spirit. So Epaphras is now declaring the, the faithfulness and love of this church at Colossae to the Apostle Paul. And again, I believe one of the reasons Paul begins this letter by an Apostle of Jesus Christ, when Paul began a letter saying, Paul, an Apostle, this is establishing, if you will, when I say establishing, establishing with the reader the authority that had been given to God or Paul by God as an apostle. So Paul is not writing just as a friend or he's not writing just even just as a fellow brother even, but Paul was an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, which remember, it was the apostles and the doctrine of the apostles upon which the church was rooted and established. So as an apostle, Paul was able to write to them with an authority that they should acknowledge and understand and recognize that would not be common if Paul just simply identified as a fellow believer necessarily or whatever. Though Paul was still an apostle, he's writing under that authority, with that authority. And that's important because we need to recognize, now listen, that does not mean, let me stop just to clarify, that does not mean that if someone today says, oh, I'm an apostle, hence I have authority, that they have any authority at all. What this is saying is it was understood that Paul was an apostle. It had been received that Paul was an apostle. It had been testified that Paul was an apostle, even by the Lord himself to Ananias and then to others also where Paul was received as such. So from these texts which mention Epaphras, it is safe to conclude that he was one who had founded the church at Colossae. Colossians 1, seven again, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Nonetheless, he's ministering, we know, but being that he is the one that is mentioned, it would not be unreasonable to believe that he possibly was the one who, who established the church. Even though Paul did not plant the church at Colossae, and although his relationship with them is obviously different than that which he shared with the church at Philippi, for instance, as we have previously seen through that study, Paul also was a faithful minister to the church at Colossae all the same. So Paul's passion for the truth to abound within the churches 
even those of which he did not plant or have personal investment in that regard, even those he had never personally met, even those he had never shared actual physical fellowship with, this is all evident that Paul's ministry was anything but self-serving. Paul was completely focused on and committed to the ministry of the gospel and the spiritual growth of all the churches alike. Hence, when Paul wrote 1 Corinthians, he did not just pat them on the back and say, continue as you are, but he rebukes them. Why would Paul do that? Was Paul self-righteous in that? No. The whole purpose for Paul writing that was to correct them and instruct them in the truth that they also might grow and mature in the faith and knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let's look at the theme of the epistle to the Colossians. While Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians all have many similarities, they also each have a unique place in the revelation of Jesus Christ within the Scriptures. Let's look at the themes of these others leading up to this, because this helps us to see the progression of what's being taught, even as we see they are canonized, these books are canonized within Scripture. The theme of Romans first, as we'll see, is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Romans 1.16 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. I shared with you many times that you will see the theme of or the thesis statement for an epistle written within the first chapter. There is an, an explanation of this is what this is all going to be about and how Christ is going to be revealed through this epistle. So we see Romans 1.16, the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God into salvation. And from there on out, Paul is speaking about the truth of that gospel and the power of that gospel and how it transforms us, how it delivers us, how it is that which will ultimately deliver us unto the glory of God. The theme of 1 Corinthians is sanctification in Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 1, 2, and 3. Under the church of God, which is at Corinth, to them that are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, with all that in every place call upon the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice Paul says that they were sanctified in Christ Jesus. That's past tense. It was done. That's positional. They, they are sanctified. But then he says called to be saints. They, that had already been done too, the calling, but they were now to live out that calling. And that is the error of the Corinthians. They were living in this carnality rather than living in the truth of the calling as that of saints, those whom God has set apart to himself. Second, or third, the theme of 2 Corinthians is the comfort of God in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians 1, 3-5 says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also aboundeth by Christ." I think it's very clear to see in those few verses, comfort's pretty important in the book of 2 Corinthians. And Paul is emphasizing that truth, and he's saying the God of all comfort. Now, why would Paul rebuke in 1 Corinthians and then comfort them in 2 Corinthians? Well, here's why. Because in 1 Corinthians, they are not identifying in Christ in a practical manner, and God is rebuking them through the Apostle Paul in the first epistle. After the first epistle, they've repented of this, as we see in 2 Corinthians. And now they are following after Christ. And though Paul still does not speak to them on the same spiritual level as he did the church at Ephesus, he is now comforting them about the trial and tribulation that they also will face now that they are identifying in Christ and submitted to him. In other words, he says, oh, as I have suffered, you're going to suffer. But guess what? There's a God who comforts. 
and the comfort that we have received through our suffering as a follower of Christ will also be the comfort that we are able to share with others as well who suffer the same. Because, yea, all that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. The theme of the book of Ephesians is the abundance of God's provision in Jesus Christ or the position we have in Jesus Christ. Ephesians 1, 2 through 6, grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us under the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he hath made us accepted in the beloved. So here you find God's provision in Christ and that he has given us a position in Jesus Christ. The theme of the book of Philippians is that of the excellency or the superiority of Jesus Christ. I think I actually missed, I'm sorry, the book of Galatians. In Galatians, we find the sufficiency and or exclusivity of Jesus Christ in in chapter 1, verses 3 through 8. Then in, the, in Philippians, the excellency or superiority of Jesus Christ, Philippians 1, 9 through 11. And this I pray, that your love may abound yet more and more in knowledge and in all judgment, that ye may approve things that are excellent, that ye may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ unto the glory and praise of God. Again, things that are excellent means things that are superior, and we just concluded that study. I'll say no more. The theme of the epistle to the Colossians, therefore, as we've already read, is the preeminence of Jesus Christ. For by him, verses 16 through 18, for by him were all things created that are in heaven, that are in earth, visible and invisible, whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him, and he is before all things, and by him all things consist. And he is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have the preeminence. So notice this, if you will. After going through all that, I want to point this out. Romans. After the book of Acts, you come to Romans. Acts is the, is the declaration of the gospel. Throughout the book of Acts, you find the church is founded, the church is established. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, of course. They receive the Holy Spirit. They are now born-again believers, New Testament believers. And then the persecution comes upon the church. And what happens? They all disperse. And the word disperse literally means scattered. God scattered them as though you would sow seed in a field that it might be planted to grow. God scattered these believers through the means of persecution from the central church at Jerusalem for the sake of the word of God going forth. And you'll find that in their persecution, the scriptures and acts multiple times state that the word grew, that the word continued. Wherever they went, they were not hiding behind closed doors, just uh, hunkering down, but they were being dispersed for the sake of the propagation of the gospel. So acts is the gospel declared. While Romans... Or Acts is the gospel declared or proclaimed, while Romans is the gospel explained. Paul then uses the entire letter to explain the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ and its power. 1 Corinthians, sanctification is in Jesus Christ. 2 Corinthians, comfort is in Jesus Christ. As God is setting us apart unto himself, we will suffer persecution and tribulation, but guess what? God is the God of all comfort. The theme of Galatians, the sufficiency or exclusivity of Jesus Christ 
All we need is Christ and Christ alone. He is all-sufficient. The theme of Ephesians, God has provided abundantly for us in our position He's given us in Jesus Christ. Then Philippians, nothing can compare to the superiority of Jesus Christ. He is above and before all things. And then Colossians, He is preeminent. Not only is He to be above and before all things in our lives, He is preeminent among all creation. He is preeminent not only Lord of his church. He is preeminent not only Lord of the individual believer. He is preeminent as Lord of all. And all will bow before him. So then there's a problem which was addressed in the epistle of Colossians. There was a problem which plagued the first century church shortly after the time of its conception. And before we get into that, let me say this. It's very interesting Uh, Brother Steve and I have had this conversation before, and he's mentioned this before, I think, even publicly, that it's interesting that all the problems, as we began our study in Jude months ago on Wednesday evenings, that we earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. It's interesting that every possible known problem and attack against the gospel and truth of Jesus Christ, guess where it took place? Within the first century church. Everything that could be was addressed within Scripture concerning the attacks. Maybe it comes in a different shape, a different mask, still the same attack. And we find that to be true. And here you find the problem that that Paul addressed to the church at Colossae was that of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism is defined in several ways. And due to the complexity of its structure, there are several aspects and even definitions of Gnosticism. Someone stated that the attempt to define Gnosticism is like trying to nail down a floppy fish. So the point is, there's so many variations of Gnosticism or different definitions of Gnosticism that it's hard to say, oh, here's what it is, just absolutely in a box and deliver it. Oxford language states, Gnostic doctrine taught that the world was created and ruled by a lesser divinity, the Demiurge, and that Christ was an emissary of the remote supreme divine being, esoteric knowledge or gnosis, of whom enabled the redemption of the human spirit. In other words, they're saying that Jesus, of course, is not God, but he's less than God, but is the means by which knowing, or even might we say following after his example, is the way which we can know God. And guess what, guys? That's false. <laughs> okay? The example of Christ is not simply following what he did, but where was the heart of Christ? Obviously, it was with the Father, knowing the Father, and following after him in submission and truth. Christ is the redeemer of mankind. He is, and I'm always careful saying this because I believe this to be absolutely true, but he's more than this alone. He is the supreme example of all things pertaining to holiness and godliness. There's no doubt about that. But he is also the redeemer of mankind, which makes us holy as we know him in him. Not make us holy by that which we do in attempting to mimic him. And it's important we recognize that. Jack Zaveda defined Gnosticism by stating, The term Gnosticism is derived from the Greek word gnosis, meaning to know or knowledge. And this knowledge is not intellectual, but mythical, and comes through a special revelation by Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, or through his apostles. The secret knowledge reveals the key to salvation. To simplify, Gnostics denied the hypostatic union of Jesus, meaning that he is fully God and fully man. They did not believe that. 
and, and that they either denied that Jesus had literally a physical body, that's one form, or another sect of Gnostics claimed that the Spirit only came upon Jesus at baptism and then left him at the cross. They also ascribed to an esoteric meaning some secret knowledge of God or that God revealed himself in salvation in some mystical manner. The Apostle John wrote of such heresy in his epistle. I told you, first century church experienced these same issues, and that's why we find it in Colossae, we find it in John's writing. John being, of course, the last of the apostles. The, you know, he was the last one, and he writes after the others, no doubt many of them, are many if not all of them, had already died, and yet now John writes concerning issues that are arising more so within the church of the first century, and all these questions and all these errors and heresies are being in, being, the church is being infiltrated by them. And John even mentions that in his epistle, talking about those who come into the church who, of course, would not even let John speak to the church because of their own desire to have the preeminence among the body of Christ. But John wrote of such heresy of this Gnosticism in his epistles when he warned against those who were antichrist. John also bore witness in his epistles of being an eyewitness of the Lord Jesus Christ and that he, John, had seen, heard, and touched the very word of life in the flesh. In 1 John 1, 1 through 3, listen to what John, how he begins his epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, our hands have handled of the word of life. For the life was manifested, and we have seen it, and bear witness and show unto you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested unto us. That which we have seen and heard declare we unto you, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. Notice that John, he speaks throughout his epistle of those that are Antichrist. He mentions that. The spirit of Antichrist is already among you, he says in 1 John. So he's dealing with this and addressing this very clearly. And notice when we look at Colossae, I told you Gnosticism is a real problem that's crept into the church. And what you'll find is that John is addressing such, such heresy even here, speaking about that which we have seen, we've heard, we've handled, we have gazed upon, we have beheld, we have involved ourselves with and within the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, it is this Jesus that we declare unto you, the one who literally came in the flesh, the one who was literally God in the flesh. It is this Jesus that I declare unto you. And I'm an eyewitness, John, saying, while you were not, I am. And I can bear witness and testimony along with all the others who bear witness and testimony of this person of the Lord Jesus. So what is John really saying in 1 John? He's saying Jesus is preeminent. He is above all. He's before all. There's none other beside him. And anything other than him is inferior or either error even in the case in which John was dealing with those who had come into the church and infiltrated the church. So here we find that in Colossae, Paul is addressing this problem. No wonder he speaks of the preeminence of Jesus Christ and emphasizes this truth because there are those coming in who are attempting to pervert who Jesus is. Now let us be aware of this truth. That is still taking place today. People are still within the church perverting the truth of who Jesus is. He was God in human flesh. He is now God in glorified flesh. But He is still God in the flesh all the same. Once He was manifested in the flesh, He would remain 
in the flesh after his resurrection in a glorified body. He literally died in the flesh, which was necessary. Then he rose in a glorified flesh. And now is ever with the Father in a glorified flesh. This is the Jesus we proclaim. God did not just come upon him. Are you following? It was God in him. And Paul explains in the book of Colossae, in Colossians 2, 8 through 10, Beware lest any man spoil you through philosophy and vain deceit after the tradition of men, after the rudiments of the world, and not after Christ. Listen to what he says then. For in him, in Christ, dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. It was in his body that you see the fullness of the Godhead. What is the Godhead? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The fullness of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit is seen in the body of Jesus Christ. That's an amazing truth. It is this Jesus that is, we declare. And then verse 10, listen to what Paul goes on to say in Colossians 2. And ye, you all who know him, are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. No wonder Paul is saying Jesus is preeminent. He is first and foremost, or might we even say this, he is everything. He is everything. See, let me, let me say this to you. You do not make Jesus Lord. You do not make Jesus Savior any more than you make him creator. But neither do you make Jesus first in your life. We are called to acknowledge him as Savior. We are called to submit to him as Lord, acknowledging He is Lord. And we are also called to acknowledging, to acknowledge that God, the Father, has made Him first. You don't make Him first. You acknowledge that God, the Father, has declared that He has the preeminence. So may we do so as we begin our study of this epistle.